Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannering. Today, we are joined by Kyle Kerrigan from Upbrain, who's going to talk about a concept of social return on investment, or SROI, and how this fits overall into a nonprofit strategy about achieving its mission. The concept of return on investment, I think, is familiar in, say, the financial space where I could invest in a certain stock and what might be the return on the money I put into that investment. But this makes sense because I'm investing money and my return will be in money. But what happens when the return that we get is something like kids graduating or reduced visits to the emergency department? How do we create some kind of metric that allows us to say for every dollar I put into this, I get an equal amount of benefit in dollars or in a standardized kind of way? So Kyle and I have a very engaging conversation about converting these social goods into some more standardized metrics, not because we care necessarily about the dollar quantity that staying in school might give you, but because it allows us to compare across lots of different ideas and prioritize those ideas, benchmark them so we can evaluate them in an agreed upon way and have a more apples to apples comparison. I think that Kyle and his organization's approach to innovation is one that can help many of us generate new ideas about how to increase the impact we have and constructively evaluate those ideas for the ones that are most likely to succeed and get us what we want moving forward. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I had having it with Kyle. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kyle. I think the topic that we're going to bring today will be of a lot of interest for people trying to figure out how to find their way through using data in areas that are sort of considered non-traditional around data and evaluation. We're used to doing uh, return on investment with financial investments, but today we're going to talk about how can we take that concept of return on investment, but look at non-traditional places that that might be useful. Uh, so do you mind with starting, just introduce yourself. Tell us how you got here. Yeah, thank you for having me, Alex. Haven't been on very many podcasts, but it's been so fun when I've gotten to talk with people in our field, working in data, either working in mission-based organizations, or just those observers that like being a part of a space, making a difference in the world. So thanks for having me. I work at Upbring Innovation Labs, which is an internal department within a one of Texas's largest child well-being agencies called Upbring. So we are an internal uh, department. I serve as our director of data and analytics. And I got here by some really strange, interesting ways, but all involved uh, handshakes, people extending a hand and saying, hey, come join something. I haven't been one of those people that has had a lot of success on LinkedIn, but fortunately, I've made a lot of great relationships with people that care about me and my career. And uh, I started off my career in uh, workforce development and looking at starting new divisions, departments, new ways of enhancing impact, basically, within Goodwill. And worked for Goodwill up in Indianapolis, Indiana, transferred and worked in Goodwill down here in Austin, Texas, where I'm now based and have been since 2016 and joined Upring about four years ago. And actually, there's a leadership program locally, and it's in many different cities across the U.S. called Leadership Austin. 
and a friend of mine that I was in my cohort was a part of Upbring. I knew she'd worked in child welfare and child well-being. And, and at one point she said, hey, I, I know you're kind of feeling out your career and seeing what you want to do next. And I think my friend at Upbring is doing things like you've done, which is innovation. And I was like, I don't know, did I work in innovation? Kind of, I guess. Uh, but I'd love to talk with them. And so I talked with Ryan Park, who is now my supervisor. And about a month later, I was employed with Upbring uh, and working in child welfare, which I, I love because I spent my career working at Goodwill, where it was focused on adults and young adults trying to make uh, further inroads into their career, start a career, get a credential, something that helps them ultimately provide for themselves and their family and increase their economic self-sufficiency. We also had a unique program, not unique, I guess, in terms of America, but unique in terms of goodwills. And we had nurse family partnership, which was a nurse home visitation program. I got to actually work on that as part of my master's through Indiana University, where I got my MPA and did that and got exposed to both adults and babies and really interesting trying to serve those different populations and then families. Well, Upbring kind of filled in the gap for what is, you know, I think just as important a population as babies, but children, you know, age one to 18, basically. And we're serving kids across Texas through foster care, adoption, supervised independent living, as well as providing education through uh, charter schools at those residential treatment centers that are serving kiddos, as well as providing some Head Start and early Head Start preschool education throughout a lot of South Texas. It's actually one of the fastest growing areas of upbringing, but that's all told, we're a big platform to explore ideas in child well-being. Uh, we have about a thousand employees, 75 locations, so we're really spread thin across this big state. Uh, we all come together and try to break the cycle of child abuse, which is our mission. And I, I do that on our innovation team, as I mentioned, and do so in the data analytics space, and I basically help our leadership answer business questions. I love the idea that you're bringing this concept of innovation to the nonprofit space. I think the term itself, innovation, is so often by default or sort of stereotypically associated with tech or something you know cutting edge. And nonprofits are often not viewed as cutting edge per se. But as you're saying, you're tackling some really difficult challenges. And so this idea of bringing innovation, of trying new things and seeing what can be successful in these very tricky areas is a fascinating and I think a less common framework for thinking about this. And that's why I'm excited to talk about this concept of, all right, we have innovation. What role does data need to play in innovation? Is, is data yeah. necessary for innovation? I mean, how does that all come together? Yeah, you know, something important there, like what role does it play? I think data complements innovation in a big way. So the reason I'm even in this role, uh, I think, uh, believe me, I've had, uh, I'm familiar with imposter syndrome. It's, it's an old friend of mine uh, because I, a lot of times I've entered into roles that are ambiguous, new, or maybe I, that's not exactly what my education was. So as somebody that has a degree in liberal arts, you know, I'm not really trained in anything specific, right? That whole jack of all trades and master of none is pr pretty uh, typical to me or applicable to me. But in terms of innovation and what, what role data plays, you know, I was talking to some friends in a group just last month about how there's really, 
at least three big ways it plays a role in innovation for us. So our, we have a human-centered design approach to innovation. We start by gathering ideas at the front line or what we consider those folks interacting with our main target population. So foster parents, kids, those teachers, volunteers. We say, okay, let's look at what ideas you might have for expanding our impact, increasing our revenue or fundraising dollars, for instance, anything along those lines. And what role data plays there is maybe it goes a little bit unnoticed, but we can use it in terms of the ideation process by offering up stimuli. So we might grab a big fact about Texas. 15% of the population of Texas are children. You know, what does that mean for upbringing? And throw that fact out there. It could be a data point we get from the Census Bureau. It could be a data point about social media, anything. But really, the point is, in those eight ideation sessions, we're just trying to stimulate creativity. Data stimulates ideation by changing perspective. It puts you in a new mental framework. And that would be something I would encourage anyone to consider when trying to host an ideation session. Really simple concept, easy to implement, and low cost. I'll encourage that to all your listeners. Have a lunch. Get those people that are creative, that like to talk in your organization, brown bag a lunch and say, hey, we're going to come up with as many ideas as we can in 60 minutes. Bring a bunch of stimuli, so data points about anything, anything that starts a conversation. And that's where you can change people's perspective and how data can play a role in ideation. I also think it plays a huge role. And I know we'll talk more about this, but in the valuation part of once we have collected all those ideas, we sit down and try to score them and say, okay, how many people is this going to impact? What is it going to cost us? How many people do we need to implement and plan for the idea? How many departments does that mean? So is it everybody in one department? Is it one person in three, four departments? You know, this all comes down to understanding what it's going to take us to actually implement that idea. We can talk more about that in a minute. But what it comes down to there is it data prioritizes our innovation efforts and investments. You know, it helps us say, okay, we love these 100 ideas out of the 1,000, but these are the 10 that seem to have the biggest impact for us with the least amount of lift, right? And then I think, you know, the third area it plays a big role is when we're actually piloting those ideas and launching them. So starting a project. And this is pretty much the fun stuff, I think. It's the moments where six months into a project, your manager is saying, yo, where do we stand here? You know, how is it going? And oftentimes they might be removed from the project or it might be a manager that is impacting their department, but the functional aspects of implementing it are occurring in different departments. Great example would be the foster parent recruitment process. So we have our foster care director, but IT and then innovation are the ones actually bringing in the new software that's going to manage the foster parent verification process. So how do we help that decision maker? Because if they're the ones that own the department and are responsible for this project once it's implemented going forward, how do we help them get on board? Well, that's where data visualization comes in. Data viz, I, I kind of shorten it there, so I try not to, but data visualization really helps establish the relationships between the impact you're trying to make, the activities and the investments, right? So ultimately it shortens that decision maker's path. To the decision. And I think that's one of the biggest ways data viz makes an impact in any organization. But that's in terms of innovation. We talk about launching an idea or a new innovation. Data viz comes in and helps everybody get on the same page and then helps that group 
make a decision about whether to be sensitive to this idea or where do we take it? Do we keep investing more? So I think those are big areas where we see it, but yeah, it's been uh, used a lot in our organization in terms of prioritizing. I love those buckets of, of using data. And I don't think I've heard it quite broken down this way. They, and, and the idea of data and ideation, again, I think is so overlooked, but so critical because that unknown fact or a piece of information that's new to you can really start a new conversation because it, data can bring experiences that aren't your own. Yeah. Data can help you represent something that you personally have not seen or not experienced. And so it does really open your eyes if you create a space, like you said, come bring lunch. We're going to sit down, no judgments. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff on the wall and we're going to talk about it. We're going to explore it. Did you know that this proportion of children are in poverty? And that when we look at a map, like let's look at a map of the distribution of those children. Are there areas that surprise us when we see the number of children in poverty or, you know, those sorts of things that you can really start to think about new ways of approaching that. And I, I love that idea of data as ideation. And then the data as prioritization. Like, yes. And I think yeah. that this gets at something as well, that when you have ideas that can have different kinds of impact, right? Maybe we have one program that we realize could you know, actually save lives, right? And maybe on average, we think it'll save about a hundred lives. And then we have another program where maybe we could help a thousand children graduate school. Okay, well, we've got those numbers. How do we have a conversation about equating them in a way that we can like evaluate and, and discuss which one do we want to invest in? How do we, we want to do that? And I think that that brings yeah. us sort of this next question about ROI and, and SROI, this term that you guys came up with. So I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about that, of like, how can we evaluate programs that seem to have different denominators or, or outcomes, right? Like, how do you judge a life saved versus, you know, graduating school? How would you weight those in a way that are comparable or that you could do something with that with scoring? Yeah, I think one of the ways you can use it so SROI, so social return on investment, is that one of the main ways we connect it, Alex. We use it as part of that evaluation process of our ideas. And we use it in a couple of different ways, but I think it's helpful to actually unpack how that metric is calculated. It's a, it's a nebulous one as we learn more about ESG, environmental so and social good, that is like through uh, the UN is putting out all these ESG metrics that organizations hit, using that as a way to evaluate companies, for instance. So we look at all that, the social return on investment metric tries to say, so on the top, that numerator, so social return on investment, it can be played as a percentage ratio or dollar amount. So the numerator of that ratio or the numerator when you're calculating that percent of or dot or dollars earned per dollar investment. So that social return on investment can include a number of different factors, environmental impact, social impact. So thinking about how that might impact scholastic participation or scholastic outcomes. And when we look at those things, they're typically hard to monetize, meaning Oftentimes, our denominator is put in the form of a dollar. That's ROI in general, right? To calculate that, we'll take into account people's time, the effort put forth, and then the actual dollars, an idea cost. So if it's a software product, we know what that costs. But the, again, the numerator, including all those factors, 
in this, we're trying to monetize it and say, as a means of comparison. So as an example, so if we look at a program, we might say, okay, the impact of this idea is to see higher scholastic participation rates or higher attendance rates. So what does that mean when we try to monetize it? We might back into it and say, what does a day of school cost us to provide? What does a day of school cost a child if they do not have that day of school? How will that impact their educational outcomes? And then ultimately, how will that impact graduation rates? And we back into all that, but the key is who is the audience? The social return on investment calculation depends so much on what the intended audience or who the beneficiary is. So when we look at broad applications in a county, for instance, that is trying to increase safety, they might monetize ER visits as a means of saying, we want to reduce ER visits because, and those ER visits cost the county a lot. And, but who's the beneficiary there? The public, the county taxpayers, right? When we look at that scholastic program I just described, the beneficiary looking at is twofold. It's upbringing our mission, but it's also, it's that individual child having better education outcomes. So it, the beneficiary of the investment is one thing you cannot lose sight of and you have to keep going back to when calculating social return on investment. I am so glad you brought that up because I was thinking about the fact what you said about basically the converting of a social good into a dollar is less about actually saying, we're going to say that a child graduating is worth $12,000 and more a way of creating a relative weight for outcomes based on, like you said, the audience, the beneficiary, the the ones who have skin in the game. And so you might actually come up with different social returns on investment for the county, right? Because you would express it in tax dollars when you're talking to the taxpayers and say, here's the benefits that would come from you from these different programs. And you're going to weigh it in a way that reflects the priorities of that audience. And then you might turn around and make a different one if you're talking to the school board. And I think that gets at such an important thing, which is when you're talking about weighing these social goods, There isn't necessarily one extrinsic true value of this thing out there that you're trying to find, right? But the good is going to depend differently in different audiences. And the point of this SORI is to give a language and a way to talk to those different audiences that sort of equates those things in their perspectives, right? So Absolutely. So like when we talk about serving a thousand more children at Upbring, internally, we know what that means, right? We have a sense intuitively what that means for realizing our mission. When we're talking to our board of directors, who are highest level volunteers contributing to our mission at both a subject matter expertise level, as well as monetarily, and then their time, like our board of directors are giving everything they can to us. But at the same time, we have to talk to them in a language that helps them understand why we're asking for a six-figure investment in a new program or why we're using our time to pursue this moonshot grant of a million dollars. We have to talk to them in a way that helps them put that in context. And that would be my second tip for understanding how to implement a social return on investment calculation. You have to put SRI in context. Show not only what the SROI is, so what that ratio is, what that percentage is, what that dollar to earn to dollar invested is, but show what were the calculations that went in there. 
you know, the number of people served in that is also an assumption you want to show. And part of that context and the most important context that's lost is the time horizon. When do, are we expecting to realize that return? And how long will it take us to realize that return? What's the list in between when we start that project and start investing? And then when are we actually supposed or expected to see that number of children uh, served? Or if we're talking about expanding an office and hiring four more family social workers, which are caseworkers internally, our family social workers should be you know, serving 20 to 30 children a month on average. You know, what does that actually mean, not only for our mission, but our organizational investment in people and culture, you know? I think being transparent about your work is a critical step for engendering trust. Data moves at the speed of trust, right? People have to trust where your numbers came from. So being oh, transparent, I love that. Yes. right? Yes. I did not come up with that. I wish I did. <laughs> I am borrowing that. <laughs> I'm but yeah, <laughs> right. Data move at the speed of trust. And I think also in a way of being equitable, saying this is what we're weighing. This is what we're taking into consideration. These are the relative values that we gave to these things when we calculated them. And then setting that expectation of the time horizon. Because again, if you're talking about a return on investment of say sixfold, but that's over 10 years versus another investment that might be a return of twofold but in a time horizon of maybe a year to two years, right? That could influence somebody's take on which one's worth investing in. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and what I think is a third leg of that stool. Okay, playing your inputs for the calculation. Also looking at who is the beneficiary. So the beneficiary, the time horizon, sharing those inputs. Another leg on that stool is I would caution folks you can spend endless amount of time calculating an SROI. Why is that? Because the work we're doing is connected to so many things. You could spend endless amounts of time finding new things that contribute to the return and finding new things that contribute to the investment. So effectively, you could spend endless amounts of time calculating the, or identifying and valuing that numerator denominator point is at some point you've got to make a decision about what counts and what matters to your mission and the beneficiaries of that investment or new program, new idea, et cetera. Right. You're defined what's good enough. We have to have yeah. a minimum viable. And we, when we get there, we agree, let's just move forward with this. It's, it's good enough. Yeah. That, that's such a common theme in data of this idea of it just needs to be better than you would be without it. <laughs> Does not need to be perfect. You'll perfect is absolutely the enemy of good with with data. So yes, totally, having totally, yeah, having that agreed cut off. I think tip three brings me to a question I want to make sure I ask about. Do you have recommendations for finding those kinds of resources that can be most effective and in, in guiding some of these calculations? You know, if I am trying to sit down and say, all right, I want to talk to a taxpayer about how keeping kids in school is going to going to help the taxpayer. How do I go about how many tax dollars, you know, a day of truancy costs them? Do you have suggestions for finding those resources? Yeah, a couple ways. So where I would start is going back to your mission and saying, how are you displaying or currently demonstrating your impact towards that mission right now through your annual reports, your reports to funders? How are you going and talking to your board about that right now? 
and then taking those valuations. So maybe your intense focus on a program is number of people served. Okay. So I would start there and say, why are we counting that? And, and then going back and saying, okay, how do we tie back those efforts to those individuals? And then as far as tools, I would be looking at, there's an organization called Better Evaluation that I think I can provide a link to, but they provide a lot of context towards how you might calculate a social return on investment yourself. And then as far as the data sources themselves, I turn a lot to the Census Bureau. And there's been a Census Bureau-like organization in Texas, Texas Counts or something to that effect that provides further socioeconomic data about the state. Because oftentimes we want to benchmark our social returns off of widely accepted metrics. And that keeps our returns conservative. It keeps our returns broadly applicable and then gives you something you can immediately tie back to in reference as uh, justification. You know, it helps to have that third party data point where you as the analyst or you as that project director can't be, or you help safeguard you a little bit against bias claims. You know, you're using a public metric. So all these data sources I'm referencing are public. And for my field specifically, child well-being, I'm often looking at Annie Casey Foundation. Tons of great resources there as a, as a public provider of data. And then I would just say to anyone, the best resource for me, it, from data perspective, I've found in general is storytelling with data. The book that anyone can go out and get on Amazon very cheaply uh, or get the PDF. The author does a great job of just helping you understand how to visualize the work and going into the story behind that social return on investment you're providing. Uh, and that's probably the number one thing I share with anyone is storytelling with data. I do like that book. It's a very good one. We'll definitely include links to these resources because they're all really good. And I think you hit on an, on an important point of don't think that you have to sit down and create all of these evaluations. You don't have to create oh, these yeah. metrics internally, right? You're saying, actually, it's better for reliability and reducing bias and credibility externally to find a third party who's already done that. And it turns out, you know, there are lots of organizations and probably for any population that you serve, somebody out there has probably asked this question already and said, you know, how do we evaluate tax dollars towards schooling or whatever it might be? So I, I think that's a really important thing. And hopefully we'll take a load off some people who were thinking, I'm interested in this, but oh God, I can't do all of that research and all that calculation. And <laughs> the idea is you don't have to. Someone else out there has probably already done it and it's going to be better for you to use an external party anyway to, to develop that sort of trustworthiness that I'm not the one who came up with this. They said this too. Yeah, well said, Alex. Yeah, you know, I think about Upbring. So we, our organization was started as a Lutheran organization, Lutheran Social Services of the South in 18. 94, I believe. So I have to imagine the questions being asked internally have been asked before. I, I'm not the guy that somehow found them. The difference today are the tools we have, right? The ability for an individual or small team to answer those questions is a thousandfold, right? That's the big difference today is our ability in to answer the questions and then the nuance we're able to provide about the answers, right? And then the expediency. I mean, 
that's that's something that today I'm I'm hoping we keep going. I, I think you referenced at the beginning. You know, a lot of times data in the mission based sector is a l- little bit complicated. There's concepts like this social return on investment that people eh, they kind of know what it's about. They kind of don't. The tools are where I would encourage people to invest time in because things like Microsoft Power BI, things like I'm thinking uh, Apache Spark, these cloud-based warehousing systems that enable you to create data pipelines and merge multiple data sources, things like that didn't exist six, seven years ago. And they're so readily available for our mission-based partners or peers in the space that, again, getting back to those questions, they've been asked before. So let's look at the tools that will enable us to answer them quicker, less resources, and ultimately provide more nuance and context around the answers, right? Yeah, I love it. I mean, the census has been going on for how many years? I mean, long, long, long time. But now I can go online and I literally can download any of the 66,000 variables for any geography that my little heart desires. And all of a sudden, immediately like this, I have a table on exactly the thing that I need. And Power BI, I think, is a great resource to bring up because if you have Office 365, if you have a Microsoft license, you have Power BI. You don't even have to invest in anything additional to be able to have an incredibly powerful tool that, yes, there's a learning curve too, but you can figure out the basics for it. And you can now not only have census data at your fingertips, but you could merge that with state-specific data, with data from foundations. You could start to bring together all of this stuff to really get a nuanced picture of exactly what you're looking at. That's so true. Yeah. And like while we're talking about that, that's something I'm going to also encourage our peers to take a look at. So Microsoft Power BI is a great example. This is where like data analysts and those students that are seeking internships, it's the perfect role and intersection of providing students with a great experience for their career and immediate impact for our organization. Find the local university, find the student that needs a portfolio that can work at an internship rate and will help your organization get obtain a BI to a, a business intelligence tool like Microsoft Power BI, which I would recommend, or something else even is fine, but get them to help you start getting familiar with a tool like that. And the differences it can make in your organization are immediate. That's the thing. The return on that is immediate. And then you get some experience with a tool yeah. that is going to be so important for your organization going forward. Just make the decision now. I love that idea of bringing in inter- interns. I've recommended that before, but because it's such a win-win. Such a win-win. Yes. And you that's know. what we're looking for in social return on investment. <laughs> exactly. Like that's, they're win-win-win. They're often multiple <laughs> beneficiaries, yep. right? So yeah, absolutely. And, and it's fun because with an intern, your organization gets a benefit. And I love that it also sort of breaks the cycle of so many entry-level roles expect you to already have these skills. And so you're able, and you could even target, you know, if you have a particular social mission for your organization, that could feed into who you select for your interns as well. You know, there's so many yeah. areas that this doesn't just have to be a, like, okay, this is going to be something we do to solve this problem over here. It could actually be part of contributing to that solution with how you select your intern. It's funny because I usually end my my interviews ax- asking for action points, but I've got two pages full of notes of actions that, <laughs> that individuals could take out of this. I think this is so wonderful from, yeah, contacting your local university or college and identifying possible interns, places to go to get critical data. When we started having that lunch and learn discussion about ideation, there's so much that people I think can take from this and put into action 
pretty quickly. Did you have any last action steps or suggestions for people getting wanting to get started in this space of of exploring social returns on investment that we haven't talked about yet? One, kind of like a movie, we'll go back to the beginning. <laughs> the, the the whole swordfish start at the ending, go back, <laughs> you know. So our data and analytics effort emerged from our innovation lab. We identified a problem within a year of starting our innovation lab that we didn't have the capacity to track value and continue to monitor the progress on all these projects. We had people on our team doing research, partnering with universities on new program models. We had folks in advocacy. You know, we had folks doing a lot of what we typically think about data in nonprofits that is reporting to funders. We realized though, we need this capacity for answering the, true, the questions that are most important to our leadership. And we weren't doing that. So innovation helped us identify this. And then that's how I ended up in the role. So what I would say is any organization can start with that very small investment of an hour, collective six hours, we'll say. If you have six people in a room over lunch, everybody's got to eat lunch. Everybody has the person in the office that is always full of ideas. Get them around a table. This is the lowest cost investment for the highest return for your organization. Talk about ideas. And that's also a huge retention effort because those people want to be heard. And it gives those people an opportunity to talk about what's going on in the organization. You will learn something. You will walk away knowing something new about the organization, new about the people you're working with, and ideas for taking it forward. I, I can't emphasize enough, do that ideation launch. One of the most common things I hear in discussions about data with experts from all over the field is this idea of don't start with, we need data. Start with, what are the questions we're asking? Oh, what are those yeah. biggest questions, right? Whether it's the questions of the leadership trying to decide how to steer the ship. I mean, you can start with questions from your funders. If those are the questions you have to answer, that's a place to start. But I think those directive questions, right? We're trying to figure out what programs we fund. We're trying to figure out how much grant funding do we need to pursue. We're trying to figure out how to staff appropriately. We're trying to figure out, are we accomplishing our mission? Are we doing the thing we said we're doing in the most effective way, right? For the investment that we're making, is this the best way to do it? Or is there a way we could innovate that we could have these ideations and try new things and find ways that are going for the same investment accomplish more of what we're trying to do? So yes, saying like, hey, we're not answering these leadership questions. How do we actually do that? And I love what you said, yeah, the retention, like give people a chance to be heard, give people that chance to have new ideas. And I think that another thing you, you, you said earlier about data is it gives a way of sort of in a neutral way evaluating these ideas. You're not saying, well, I like Casey's idea better, right? I think Casey's idea is going to work better. Everyone puts these ideas up and you have these external benchmarks that you're holding the ideas up against. And then you can, usually the decision becomes fairly obvious to everyone at the same time because you've agreed on those benchmarks and those measures. Absolutely. I think you hit on something else that, I should have mentioned with that ideation session. So make it clear what your follow-up is going to be and what you're going to do with those ideas Mm -hmm. you've just collected. Mm -hmm. If you're going to put them in a folder and say, we'll return them at an undetermined amount of time, (laughs) tell people that. That transparency goes a long way. And Because what you really want from it, the number one thing you want is another lunch. You want another conversation about ideas now that you've 
trained in that type of conversation, trained getting into that creative headspace. And that's, again, what stimuli are you using? Are you using data for it? But that follow-up, you hit on something, Alex, there that is really important. Uh, and I just, I just noticed, I'm sorry for the folks who just listening, you sure it says all for data? Yes. And, you get one of those. and, the, and then data for all. Oh, and data for all. Oh, I love that. Love that. I, I have quite a collection of geeky data shirts. <laughs> yeah, mine's, a, mine's just black. <laughs> so, yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think we have hit on so many resources, so many tools, so many steps for people to take action to. And I think that your honesty about the imposter syndrome as well is going to ring very true for people listening to this podcast of, well, I'm not a data person. You're expecting me to do all of this, but you're living walking proof that, yes, you can do this. (laughs) Promise. Definitely. We have leaders in our organizations that don't consider themselves business people, but I'm looking at them going, you have way higher higher level of business acumen than you realize. You're managing 10 people. You're managing a budget that's significant, sometimes in the seven figures, but you are a business person and you have a ton of talent. Let's take a look at how we uncover some solutions and not just look at the performance, but you know, what solutions do you need? Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a joy. Thank you, Alex. I had a blast. Thank you for joining me and Kyle for this conversation about social return on investment and how we can use data to help us be more innovative in our nonprofits. Kyle also shared a link with me afterward where Upbring does have an innovation calculator that can help provide some additional guidance around the questions you might want to ask when developing your own social return on investment calculations. We'll include that link in the show notes on our website, heartsouldata.com, as well as in the notes below this episode if you're looking at it on a podcast app on your phone or mobile device. There's also going to be a wealth of other information included, links to census data, links to some external parties that help provide good resources for these kinds of calculations. I also wanted to mention a resource that I have at Moroccanos, which is a tool that can help you download data from the census. There are census data tools already on the website, and for the most common data elements that you might want to pull from the census, those data tools are great. But if you're looking for some of the less common data elements, after all, there I think are 6,000 variables in the census, I have a tool using something called Alteryx that can pull directly from the full complete data set of the census. So if this is something that is of interest to you, there is also a link to that in the show notes. Uh, You can also find it on my website at maracanos.com. So thank you again so much for joining me for today's conversation. There's so much to put into play from this episode, so many actions that you could take, and I hope that you do find the time to be able to take one of them. Thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Alexander Mannerings. And if you found this podcast episode helpful, please do share it, leave a comment, leave a rating. And if there's something you would like to hear, feel free to go to heartsolddata.com contact, leave me a note, send me some recommendations for topics, or if you yourself or you know someone who would like to be a guest on the show, I'm always looking for new perspectives on data. So be well, walk in peace. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanos. 
an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Maracanos.com. M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.